Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. This afternoon, we're excited to be interviewing uh, Mike Eister. He's a candidate for the mayoral race here in Springfield, Oregon. And I'm going to begin with reading Mike's bio to uh, everyone who's, who will hear this. Mike's most recent professional career experience was serving as Senior Associate Vice President for student life at the University of Oregon from which he retired in 2016. Mike also served as the director of housing, university housing, and the direct executive director of the University Health Center. In addition to his roles on the U of O campus, he was also appointed as one of the certified incident commanders, working in collaboration with, <clears throat> with community and campus partners to handle emergency response for issues such as public health and pandemic crisis. Prior to coming to the U of O, Mike served in leadership positions on other campuses around the country, assuming more responsibility with each new position. He also served on National Professional Association boards during, during his career. His, career. his work in higher education involved overseeing large auxiliary operations within a university overseeing hundreds of employees. Auxiliary operations are multi-million dollar business enterprises within the university that must generate revenue and be self-supporting and or generate revenue back to the general fund of the university. In addition to his professional career, Mike has served on or chaired multiple boards in the community, including Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce, past chair, Lane Transit District, past chair appointed by the governor, City Club of Springfield, past president, Springfield Chamber, Springfield Chamber Economic Development Committee, past chair, Springfield Utility Board, elected position, current vice chair, Lane Community College Board of Education, elected position, current chair, Springfield Renaissance Develop, Development Corporation, current president, Better Eugene Springfield Transportation immediate past president. Mike was also the longtime chair of the Springfield Chamber Economic Development Committee and a former board member for Travel Lane County, formerly Sivalco. Mike served in the U.S. Army Reserves and National Guard. He has lived in Springfield since 1994. He and his wife Cheryl grew up in the Midwest in working class families and farm families respectively. Their son, Zach, is 27, a graduate of the U of O, and Zach lives and works in Portland. Mike, good to have you. Good afternoon and welcome this beautiful, uh, almost feels like summer day. Beautiful day out there, that's for sure. Yes. So why don't you go ahead and take a few moments uh, to inform the voters, the listeners, why you're running for mayor. Well, first of all, Mark, I want to thank you for doing this. I've I uh, appreciate your doing the forum with me, but I have noticed that you've done a number of these, and I think it's a real service to our community uh, in these times of COVID and the times of, uh, it's hard for news organizations to actually cover things. And so you're providing some of the only coverage that uh, people have available. So I've, I really appreciate that. Welcome. So um, I, I, I was motivated to run for mayor because I see just incredible potential for Springfield. And uh, we have uh, amazing assets here. Uh, we have one of the best uh, 
park and recreation districts in the country, beautiful geography. We have an incredible river. We're right on I-5. Uh, there are just all sorts of uh, assets that make Springfield a, a wonderful place. And to tell you the truth, I have not been satisfied with, the, uh, with our rate of progress. I think we can do a lot better. Uh, so I'm, I'm highly motivated to um, sort of kick that into high gear. And uh, I, I think we have just amazing potential. And what, what we have recently demonstrated is we not only have great potential, but we have some amazing entrepreneurs in our community that are willing to put that potential to work. And so I, I'm so anxious to uh, roll up my sleeves and work with them. And uh, we need to see the rede redevelopment that's taken place in the 300 block of Main Street go from Glenwood all the way out to Thurston and go north and south and encompass all of Springfield. Very good. All right. So there's a lot to talk about today. So I want to just establish real quick <clears throat> after hearing your bio after reading that on your just on your combined board experience since your arrival to springfield in 1994 91 oh yeah 94 in springfield 91 at the willamette valley okay very good yeah in your in all of your board experience what is your combined how many years total of all these boards have you been serving i never thought about that until you asked me that question mark and uh, I'm, I was surprised to get the number. So before I say the number, I want to make sure everybody understands this was not consecutive. Uh, this was simultaneous. So many of these years I was serving on multiple boards at the same time, but I, I sort of stopped counting at 60 years. Okay. Very good. You know, our leadership journeys, and this is important because our leadership journey for anyone who is involved in service to the community, whether you're mayor, city councilor, or serving on multiple boards or community volunteer, it's normally a very long process of service and development and learning and living. And so I just wanted to, people to get a, a, a more of an expanded uh, role of who you are. Now, the amount of, of boards you've been on, each one has had their own independent budgets. Of all of those boards, what's the total amount of those budgets combined that you've helped manage and oversee? Uh, once again, Mark, I, I sort of stopped counting at a billion. Uh, you know, there are a lot of hundred million dollar um, uh, boards and I did those for multiple years. And so it's well over a billion dollars. Okay, so <clears throat> let's just give a little perspective to the people that are listening. Do you remember the budget for the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce? Uh, that one at the time I was serving was fairly small. Uh, you know, it's uh, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. I'm thinking. I'm not. I'm not positive. Mm -hmm. Okay, and LTD. Um, well, so with these big public organizations, there are two parts of the budget. Mm -hmm. There's the operating budget, and then there's the whole budget that has a lot of pass-through money and capital improvement. So uh, just, just on the operating budget, I'm thinking, I'm remembering around $90 million. Okay. And um, City Club, what was, does the City Club run on a budget, or we just deal with leadership concerns? Uh, so that the, there was a very small budget. You know, we, we it's a membership organization. Um, 
but and, and there's not a lot of expense so it was it was a, a small budget i just don't recall <clears throat> okay so like like the lcc budget that's uh around the operating budget around 90 million dollars um so yeah what about sub uh i want to say that's also around 90 million dollars as well now we know that the Spring for Renaissance Development Corporation does a lot of uh, looking for reviving downtown. Did they, what, did they have an operating budget? Uh, not really. We, the, the money that we have has been in our treasury since we sold a, uh, a project that we worked on and we made a little bit of profit. And that was several years ago and we've been uh, working off that, uh, that profit ever since then. Well, it must have been a good profit because uh, it's it's lasted in good stewardship as well. Well, we haven't spent very much. <laughs> uh, okay. And what about Better Eugene Springfield Transportation? What's that exactly? Uh, that That's an organization. It's an advocacy organization that's designed to promote um, transportation, uh, transportation policy, transportation safety, um, and uh, works closely with uh, LTD, uh, and, and it works closely with uh, people who are concerned about alternate methods of transportation. Um, and one of the things that I learned as I worked with LTD is that there's a close integration of uh, land use as well as uh, economic development with transit, and so as well as safety. Uh, as well as environmentalism and as well as walkable neighborhoods. So all of those things kind of come together when you start talking about uh, public transportation. Uh, and, and BEST does all of those things. Well, that's interesting. I guess I never considered the full scope of within the, within the concept of transportation. Yeah. I mean, I understand we have bike trails now. I guess I considered those really the running trails, the, river, the trail along the river, all more geared towards recreation. But the truth is, a lot of people ride those, the bike trail along the river to get back and forth to work in different That's true. tropical locations. You're exactly right. So it's really important that public transportation integrate with those networks. Oh, interesting. That, that's, you learn something new every day. That's a really powerful point. The total amount of years accumulated serving as chair or vice chair or president or vice president leadership positions on boards or other areas of service. This goes back a long time, Mark. I, I, I have to tell you, I didn't even try to count. I, I told you I got 60 years okay. uh, at least. And, and it seems like most boards I've been on, I have ultimately ended up chairing at some point. And usually when you chair a board, it's for one or two years. Sometimes it's a little longer than that. Well, I think it's important that we we talk about leadership. You know, this concept of established leadership, experienced leadership. There's no doubt that you and Mayor Lundberg are two highly seasoned, experienced, skilled leaders, and you're both very credible in that area and in that realm. Uh, just so people can get an average, uh, an idea, what's the average size of the board you've served on, or um, it varies quite a bit. Uh, you know, the um, sub board is five people and uh, you take a board like the chamber board, as you know, it's I think 24 people right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so most of the boards that I've been on have been under 25 uh, people. 
And if you're elected to mayor, if you win the election, you have to be prepared to work with a broad range of not just city staff, but other elected officials, other uh, organizations in, within the community, what type of community leaders were are on those type of boards and how has serving those boards best prepared you to, if you, if you win the election, you're going to come in post pandemic or mid pandemic, whatever the, we don't know exactly what that means, but you've had some training for it, according to the bio for your preparation. What are some of the types of community leaders you worked with that will, you believe has given you a, a very solid developmental base? Well, I'll start out by saying, Mark, that uh, both in my professional career life and my public board life, one of the things that I've been most happy about is my ability to learn from other leaders that um, an effective leader is someone that focuses on the group and finds a way to bring people together to find out where our common interests are, where our common denominators are. So one of the things I'm, I'm most happy about with regard to my current campaign is that I, I have supporters that have Bernie signs in their front yard and I have other supporters that have voted for Donald Trump. And uh, I think that's pretty indicative of, of me. There's, uh, I've gotten the endorsement from the Register Guard and I've gotten the endorsement from the Eugene Weekly. Um, so, uh, and, and nearly every elected leader in, in the area in Springfield and around Springfield has endorsed me as well. They certainly don't all see eye to eye or have the same agreement on everything. And so one of the things that uh, serving on all those boards over all those years has taught me is the importance of finding common ground, finding, uh, being able to set aside our, our individual um, biases and prejudices and saying, we're really, we can agree that this is important. Let's find a way that we can all work together on whatever this is, whatever the particular topic is. You know, leadership is, it's so hard because inevitably if you serve in any form of leadership position, any type of leadership capacity, inevitably you're gonna come into situations where you have to make some decisions that are not popular. Yeah. You, have to, you have to contend with some individuals that don't like you, that don't approve of you. I remember when I was in the army and I was developing as a young leader and we, we, they send you through so many leadership schools, you're your prior service. So, you know, but I remember being told if you, as a leader, you know, you made a really good decision when 50% of the people like it and 50% <laughs> of the people hate it. But 50% of the people are happy with you and 50% of the people are mad at you then you've made the best balanced decision possible. And so that the reality that you were going to have as a leader, you were going to have to make decisions regardless of the outcome, because that was part of leadership. That is part of, you know, helping an organization move forward in your combined uh, leadership experience. Do you feel that, that has been a, a, a trademark of your leadership style, being able to make decisions that even if there's risk of, you know, re rejection or, sub or acceptance of whatever the outcome is, that you were prepared to make that. Yeah, I, I have had to do that. Uh, I try, I usually try to do better than 50% if I can. Uh, yeah. But uh, I've, I have found that at times you, 
the reason that you were elected or the reason that you're in that leadership position is because ultimately the responsibility has to stop somewhere. And uh, so, you know, not, you, you, we don't run everything here by uh, sort of a pure democracy where everybody votes because it would be very hard to arrive at decisions if everybody had to reach unanimity on every issue. And so ultimately, um, part of the job of a leader is to, to work with people, to understand them, to listen really hard and try to find out where those points of common interest are. Mm-hmm. Very good. Let's talk a little bit about your time in military service. You were in the Army Reserves and National Guard. What was the total amount of time in those two services? I, I'm remembering, I think it was eight years. I think it was a seven-year enlistment, and uh, I stayed in for eight years. I, I started out in a uh, Army tank unit as a, uh, you know, you go through basic training and then you go to AIT. And so my AIT was in supply. And then I, ultimately I became a company clerk in the tank unit. But I, I heard about this National Guard band in my town mm-hmm. and I was a musician. And so I tried out for the band and I ended up uh, playing in the band and I stayed in past my enlistment because it was very enjoyable. Uh, Army musicians were a very eclectic group of people, and, uh, and, and it was just enjoyable. It gave me a chance to get back to playing an instrument again, and, uh, you know, th- that's real teamwork when you're playing in a, in a musical group, so I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the military, the precision of the military bands are second to none, and the learning to work as a team, learning to maintain cohesiveness, it's strict. There's, it's not a free-for-all. You have to uh, stay within the cadence and stay within the rhythm and stay within the tempo, not just of the music, but of the formation and the body movement, especially when it reflects uh, a proper military well-being. Yeah, yeah. Now, <clears throat> when you serve at the U- University of Oregon or any other, you had some significant roles as a certified incident commander working in collaboration with community and campus partners to handle emergency responses for su- for issues such as public health and pandemic crisis what does that look what did that look like at that level how were you trained and prepared and developed and how would that transfer that experience uh, preparation transfer if you're elected mayor coming into that position post-pandemic? So FEMA has uh, an incident command system that has various levels of certification. And I I forget now, uh, to be an incident commander, how many certifications. It seemed like it was somewhere between five and seven where you have to pass these different classes. And and I was was fortunate because uh, my career was in student housing. And when you're when you work in student housing, you see a wide variety of situations, I'll just say. And so you, you become seasoned at working with emergencies. So I was able to bring that experience to the formal training that the federal government provides for incident commanders. And, uh, and, and then of course, uh, when I was at the university, I ended up being an incident commander for uh, various, various things that occurred on the campus. And um, what, what the job of the incident well, first of all, there's an emergency management system. And what that emergency management system does as an organization 
is to prepare in advance. As you know, as a former soldier, preparation in advance is so important. And so that when the emergency actually happens, what you're doing is you're implementing a plan. You're not trying to make up the plan as you go. Mm -hmm. So that we spent a lot of time doing tabletops, doing a lot of preparation, putting things in place, having uh, written communication in place, ready to release in the event of a certain kind of an emergency, uh, having people in place who would play various roles. So those are the kinds of things that happens in, in an emergency management situation. And we had that all in place. And so as an incident commander, my job was to activate that or to um, implement the plan, basically. Now, what kind of what kind of concerns would address the university? What kind of incidents were are taken into consideration that you have to prepare for? Well, all manner of things. I mean, there certainly are health emergencies, but uh, certainly uh, natural disasters. That could be a windstorm uh, where where things are falling down and uh, hurt, hurting, crushing buildings, or maybe even hurting people. Um, it could be a fire, it could be a flooding kind of situation. Um, it could be a loss of uh, power. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you think of uh, 5,000 people living close together and all the power going out, and, and they're between 18 and 20 years old, all sorts of unpredictable things can happen. Mm -hmm. And so you also had, <clears throat> to handle emergency responses for issues such as public health and pandemic crisis. What does that look like at a university level? Well, the, you know, the thing, in many ways, universities are like cities and they have many of the same functions. You know, when I was a senior associate vice president, I was responsible for multi-millions of dollars worth of facilities, annual budgets in, in the multi-millions of dollars, large numbers of people, just like uh, someone who is responsible for a city would be, as well as the citizens who, in my case, the, one of the differences is that my citizens, for the most part, tended to have a much more narrow age range mm -hmm. than you would have in a city. Uh, and, and that has its pluses and minuses, as you can imagine. So um, uh, I, I forgot, I, I sort of started rambling and I, I forgot what the question was. Well, yeah, what type of the scenario to handle emergencies for public health and pandemics, what would that look like? Pandemic. Like training? Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that's, that is a little bit different about universities is that students tend to live closer in closer contact with each other, <clears throat> much closer uh, together proximity. And so when you, when you have a health emergency where there's potential for contagion, that is, that in and of itself becomes a huge issue. So uh, in, in some cases, it's necessary to do immediate immunizations. Uh, it's certainly important to get accurate information out as quickly as you can, because rumors in, in a place where people are that in that close of proximity can, can really do harm. And they, they can cause people to do things that are not in their best interest. And so uh, pandemic, and particularly in a health situation, or I mean, uh, emergencies, particularly in a pandemic situation uh, at a university are a little different than in a city, uh, but they still require the basic thing, that is preparation in advance. You have to have thought about these potential uh, things that might happen and be prepared for those things and, and have people in place, supplies in place, 
um, communications in place, uh, systems in place. All of that has to be ready to go. In your time of service at different universities across the U.S., you've had a various amount of levels of responsibility and oversight and management. But in in particular to crisis, is there any are there any particular crisis or pandemics or health issues that you had to deal with that uh, you'd like to talk about? Well, only, I mean, the, the one thing that just pops into my head is that when, when you're dealing with 18 to 20 year olds, in many cases, these are uh, people who have a wide range of maturity. Some, some come to campus quite mature and other people come to campus not quite as mature. They're also at various different levels, uh, developmental levels. And in many cases, it's their first time away from home. Mm -hmm. In many cases, the influence of a peer group when they are away from home is very powerful. And so um, that all, and then in some cases, it may be the first time or one of the early experiences that they have had in, uh, with some kind of substance, whether that be alcohol or some other drugs. So that is a, uh, a combination that can be very dangerous and, and, and it can be very unpredictable. The other thing is that, one thing I came to learn is that in many cases, uh, if, if there's going to be a, a mental health situation for a person, it's not that, that 18 to 20 year old period in their development is a time when that might happen. And so we, we would encounter situations where uh, students would be acting in ways that were totally unpredictable and total, totally unnormal for them. And it might've been their very first incident with a mental health break of some sort. So as, as you work with uh, students, you learn to not be surprised when these things happen. You, you learn to stay calm. You learn to work with your staff so that they are not shocked. Um, and uh, I, I guess, it, the, the element of surprise, you just need to be ready for it because anything could happen almost at any time. Okay, very good. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me see here. What are some of the more challenging experiences you've had as a leader in any of the roles? Um, whether it's on the school or cultural or in particular to a particular geographical region or with other leaders? What are some of those experiences that uh, helped you grow and shaped you that were challenging? You know, I, I don't know how much, um, so, some, some uh, theorists theorize that uh, birth order makes some difference in people's inclination toward leadership. I happen to be an oldest child, and I was placed in uh, leadership positions in my family. And so it seems to me, as I think back about my life, I have almost always been in a leadership position. And so when you ask me that question, Mark, I, one of my first recollections of challenge is actually fairly early in my leadership uh, experience. I recall uh, when I was a, an undergraduate student at the University of Nebraska, and I was in a leadership position. It was it was really important to me 
that the University of Nebraska adopt a policy that was highly controversial at that time, which is standard practice these days on college campuses. But the Board of Regents was opposed to it. The administration was opposed to it. Um, it, was, it was a highly controversial thing. And it was my job and my, uh, ex the role that I accepted was to try to have the, to change that policy. Mm -hmm. And I did change it within a year. Um, and, but, but what I take away from that is that experience motivated me. It motivated me to realize that um, there are effective ways to do things and there are less effective ways to do things. And, and, and it motivated me to, to try to learn more about the effective ways to, to mm -hmm. try to make change. What... Um... What were some of the actions you realize now that maybe were not so helpful that you implemented at that time, part of the growth process? Yeah. Well, some of it just has to do with competency uh, mm -hmm. and communication. You know, I, I, I wrote a position paper and, and when I look back on it years later, it's almost embarrassing at, at how poorly written it was. And so part of what I came to appreciate was the value of written skill and written communication ability. And uh, I'm still, you know, I mean, I look at people like Bonnie Mickelson and I am in awe of her communication skill. It's, it's quite impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I study that. I mean, I pay attention to it. I try to get better at it. Part of what, the, what I learned from that experience was you can get better at it. Mm -hmm. You just have to work at it. You know, the... The, your terminology, competency, communication, the value of learning, the value of the written skill. It, it's such a leadership is this long journey of growth. There's this long yeah. journey of development. It's becoming, if you're applying yourself to it, this capacity can increase and increase and increase as we grow. And it seems like you, you learn to do a lot of that. And I think that is something that is, is important in any position that's elected, whether it's the mayor or city council or county commissioner, whatever the, this office is, we must have that competency of communication, legitimate skill in reading and speaking. Now, <clears throat> with all your board experience and your leadership experience in particular universities, what are some of the budgetary crises that you've had to deal with? Well, I've worked in a lot of public universities and I've worked in the, at the University of Oregon for 25 years. So we went through Measure 5 and we went through 2008. And I have to say that what they're experiencing now would be just an unbelievable challenge. And, I, you know, I... I, I retired a while ago, so I'm, I'm not in touch with the people who are trying to implement what they're doing now, but it would be just a tremendous challenge to uh, figure out, to make decisions. For example, should the university reopen in the fall? Uh, you know, and will there be a football season in the fall or will it might be in the spring? And some of those decisions kind of have to be made in a long time in advance because they affect so many other things. Um, so, um, yeah, there, there are challenges, you know, and 
that's that's part of what leaders do is is you you work on challenges and the, the way you do it i think is you bring good people together and you listen to them and you seek their ideas and thoughts and try to get their input well there's no doubt that municipalities regardless of the level are going to be facing serious budgetary shortfalls yeah post-pandemic economic recovery renewal of the economy and so i would just it's important that the voters that hear you today that don't know you understand that if you if you win this election if you become the next mayor of springfield oregon that you have uh, some legitimate background in contending and confronting very difficult budgetary issues budgetary crisis and that um, you're going to come into a, an operating budget of about 110 million but a total adopted budget of about 325 million that's right. a lot of money yeah. uh, that you've had some, you've had the experience if you win the election to be inserted into that and to be effective immediately well, all I can say, Mark, is that I do. You know, I've managed large multi-million dollar budgets. And sometimes there were good years, and sometimes there were years that were, that were very thin. Uh, and, and when you're on the thin years, you have to prioritize. You, and you, part of the way you prioritize is you pull in uh, those stakeholders, the people who are affected. And mm -hmm. you also try to get creative. Uh, part of what I was able to do at the university was to find other ways to generate revenue, for example. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you can do that in a way that people, um, that it's not punishing people, but they, they willingly and, and happily participate, all the better. And so, I mean, the, there's no formula, there's no magic solution, but there's a process that you use. And that's part of what leadership is. I think you know that as mm -hmm. in doing what you do, is you, you use the process. Mm -hmm. So you, you You've been on several boards, you're on SUB, you're on LCC, <clears throat> you've been appointed by the governor to LTD, Springfield Ch <clears throat> Area Chamber of Commerce. Each board, each term of service, whether it's on the boards or at the university, as a leader, you've got to deal with controversial decisions, controversial yeah. votes that could potentially have a negative impact or even just a misunderstood impact. Yeah. What are some of those, uh, some, what might have some of those controversies been? How did you navigate? How did you help lead uh, through those processes? Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that uh, occurred when I first got here is that I inherited a, uh, a housing facility that was it was built as a temporary housing facility. It was over 50 years old. It had been relocated more than once. And so it was in very poor condition. Um, but the university determined that it needed to be replaced because it was hazardous. Uh, it could not be maintained safely. And that was very controversial. Uh, uh, we were in court, we were before various public bodies. And um, you, 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 as, as I said before, and as you know, you work through the process. You know, one of the things that um, I feel very fortunate to have done is that I had a very successful 
professional career alongside a very successful public board, public service career. Mm -hmm. And those are both a little bit differently. And I did them both simultaneously. And so what I bring to this uh, calculation, this uh, position, is the integration of that set of skills, having been able to uh, advance in my career to be a senior associate vice president, while simultaneously having served as chair and in leadership positions on multiple boards. That brings together a set of a skill set that I think will be uh, serve the citizens of Springfield well. The, the other thing about that, Mark, is that in all that leadership experience, part, you know, we talked about the, the wide range, the, the full spectrum of the political uh, range, but another aspect of leadership is understanding, appreciating the, um, the, the gifts and uh, the special things that each individual person brings. And that, that has to do with cultural diversity. It has to do with um, the, the wide range of people that we, that we find ourselves working with. Uh, when I think about Springfield and think about the, uh, the wonderful cultural diversity of Springfield, what occurs to me is that our community would be much less if we didn't have the cultural diversity that we have. It brings us an advantage. It brings us uh, an opportunity. It brings our kids in the school an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that, that I pursue as a leader, in fact, it's one of my uh, main planks as a candidate is to increase our inclusivity and our being a welcoming community. Uh, that's all an important part of, of leadership. And it's something that's been important to me. You asked me uh, at some point, maybe one of the questions that you haven't gotten to yet is about special training. Mm-hmm. Um, during the course of my career, this is all in, mostly in my professional career, not so much in my board career, but hours and hours of uh, cultural competency training, uh, hours and hours of leadership training, the opportunity to participate in um, professional organizations that specialize in providing training to the people in the field. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to take graduate coursework in labor relations. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I've just been really fortunate in my professional career as well as my public service career. Very good. <clears throat> what were some of the strategies you employed in some of your other experiences? You were in charge of these multi-million dollar business enterprises within the university themselves. You had to raise money. What were some of those strategies uh, to, in order to do that? Because if you become mayor, if you're elected, there's going to be a whole lot of uh, collaboration needed to help drive the city forward when, when an absolute budgetary shortfall. Yeah, yeah. So part, part of what I is, is natural for me, Mark, is that I engage. You know, if a new business opens up, I, I want to be there for the ribbon cutting, but I also want to be there two weeks later and a month later and two months later. I want to have regular contact with those folks. And that, that, that goes for as many Springfield folks as people as I can connect with. Uh, it's, it's just important that they know who their mayor is, that they know that their mayor is concerned and cares, that they know that they can come to their mayor if they have a concern. Um, so 
um, that, that's a, an initial strategy. Um, I don't know. That's, that's part of what rolls off the top of my head. Maybe if you want me to elaborate, just poke me some more and ask, ask me to elaborate a little bit more. Okay. No, uh, no, that's, that's good. You know, we're talking about, there's just going to be some budget for shortfalls uh, for the city and they're going to think of new and different ways to raise funds. And you've, you've, had, oh, to yeah. you've had to do that. So yeah. Any, any idea on the top of your head? Uh, well, so, that might work? so, so part in terms of revenue generation in particular, um, you have to find out what's important to the people that you're asking to provide the revenue. And so when, when I was at the university, if we could provide a better service, if we could provide a, a, a better product, whether that be a food product or a housing product, um, we, we would try to do that. And we try to do that in a cost-effective way. Um, you know, the cities don't sell so much products as they, they uh, try to promote the, the value of being a part of their community. And, you know, I'm all over that. Uh, that's, that's part of uh, what we all do with the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, I make it clear to the people who are working so hard to make our city the wonderful place that it is, how important that is, how much I appreciate it. I nominate them for awards. I'm there uh, cheering for them and rooting for them. And as mayor, I can do a little bit more than that. I can help them figure out where they might have access to programs, where they might have access to funding, uh, where they might have access to incentives, uh, th those sorts of things. And that's what I can imagine myself doing. Economic vitality is sort of the lifeblood of the city. And we, we need to rely on that. And I need to be part of the, uh, the group that's, that's in the forefront of leading that effort. Very good. Now, what, would, what are your thoughts on, you were, you were in charge of housing issues working for the universities. How does that uh, transfer over to developing a different, if you think there, we need a different housing policy, yeah. those experience, how does that help you develop a new uh, housing policy or improve on our current housing policy within the city? Well, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this, but while I was at the university, I built $50 million worth of housing. So I know a little bit about that process. And when you build housing at a university, you not only have all of the university bureaucracy that you have to go through, but that housing is built within a city. So you also have to go through all the city's development uh, codes and plans as well. So it's highly complex to do that. Um, but, uh, but I have that experience. One of the first things I'll do is to put that $3 million to work. The legislature granted the city of Springfield $3 million to build a modular uh, home community. And uh, that was quite a while ago. And we have people that are sleeping on the streets now. So I want to get that money uh, put to use so that we can immediately get something built. Uh, it may, it's probably going to be necessary to incentivize in some way housing. Certainly one of the things I will do is I will spend our resources strategically. Uh, I, I have disagreed with some of the uh, allocations uh, of, of the current administration, $800,000 on a parking structure in Glenwood that's probably never gonna be built, just doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Um, that money needs to be put to use in a, in a strategic way. Uh, I would convene experts. 
housing is a problem all over the country. Some communities are doing better than others in trying to find a solution to that. So we want to find some best practices and see, do they apply here? Could we, could we possibly put those to work here in Springfield? There was a, a desire to convert the Memorial Building downtown to housing for the underhoused. What's your opinion on how that might be utilized? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm familiar with the building because I am a, an Egan volunteer and uh, I have volunteered uh, for the Egan Warming Centers in that building. So I know that it can be used for that purpose. It's uh, the, the one thing that we know for sure is that there is a, a, a tremendous need mm -hmm. for housing for homeless folks. One of the first things that has to happen is to provide cover. Uh, and I know that there's a group of people working very hard to have that happen. I also understand that that building has been sold. And so I, I, I'm not sure how, that's, how that will work. It hasn't been sold to the group that's trying to use it as a, uh, a housing day center. And, so, and I'm also not sure of the accuracy of my information. So all of this kind of, we need to find out, has it really been sold? I mean, that, that could be confidential information, who's buying it or who have bought it. Uh, I simply don't know, don't know the answer to that. But the one thing I'm convinced of is that we do need to provide a place where people can come in undercover. Is there a, a particular, uh, maybe a different alternate site in Springfield that you might be aware of that if you're elected mayor, you might pursue for the un, uh, underhoused? Well, I, I know that we have um, buildings that are un, underutilized and unutilized. Um, and so that is a place where I would start looking. Uh, with regard to housing in general, one of the things that we know is that Springfield lacks housing at the entire spectrum, from very affordable to the high end. We simply don't have enough housing. Mm -hmm. That comes from a report from the city staff. The other thing that we know is that we have underutilized facilities. And when you take a look at the 300 block of Main Street, the second stories of those buildings on the north side of the street were all empty spaces that had been empty for a very long time. And a developer came in and said, I can do something productive with this and built housing, built apartments there. And now we have somewhere between 25 and 30 apartments on Main Street in one block that was just basically under or unutilized space. And those are all within uh, a place that already had all the infrastructure, had everything already there. It just took the creativity and the courage and the vision of uh, a developer to say, I can do something with this. I think we need to put those folks to work because we've got buildings all over Springfield that are underutilized. Do we have enough, <clears throat> excuse me, do we have enough um, affordable housing? When I say affordable, I'm trying to be careful not to be disrespectful to people that might be on Section 8 or might be coming up out of the unhoused, especially now post-pandemic. Do we have enough housing that people can, can afford um, outside of apartments? We do, not. we do not. What, what, we do not. We lack housing at every level of the continuum. What would be your plan 
because it's a big deal. What are some of your thoughts as to how we could change that to make that more accessible? Do we need to extend the urban growth boundary or do we need to, does the city need to buy some land from someone, from a commercial developer or what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, part of what I just talked about uh, is part of part of what I think about that. If if we can find creative, courageous, visionary entrepreneurs that can um, find a building that is underutilized and convert it, and and utilize space that is just sitting there waiting to be used, that's an ideal situation. And and you know, who would have guessed five years ago that we would have thirty people living on on Main Street in one block, mm-hmm. had, you know, uh, and space that was just sitting there empty just five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's in some ways uh, seems to me like low-hanging fruit, although it's not easy to do. I don't mean to imply that. It, it does require a courageous, visionary, um, creative person to do that who's willing to put their own uh, work at stake and their own fi- financial resources at stake. Okay. Very good. Let's talk about Glenwood for a moment. That is such a controversial area, such a controversial topic. What would be, if you're elected to mayor of Springfield, what would be your plan, your vision to develop Glenwood? What kind of policies would you like to create? Because I I didn't know, I was surprised to hear, because there's so much that voters don't know, that Lane County owns so much of that property out there. How would we, how would you, if you're elected mayor, interact with Lane County, get development? What would be your vision uh, for that kind of development? Well, you, you hit on one thing, uh, Mark, when you said that uh, a lot of people don't know. You should not have to be a city hall insider to know what the city is thinking about. Um, and right now, the city does own a, a considerable chunk of land in Glenwood. And I was on a stakeholder group years ago that developed what's called a refinement plan. And the purpose of a refinement plan is to set up sort of the rules of the road for what future development might look in an area. Uh, And uh, that refinement plan right now, uh, it might need some tweaking, some updating, some uh, changes, but that refinement plan is in place and it's designed to attract uh, mixed-use development on one of the most beautiful stretches of riverfront in the whole area. Uh, the the uh, current administration has different ideas for how that riverfront ought to be used, and I don't have anything against an indoor track. That may be perfectly appropriate for track town, but the plan that is currently envisioned, I think, is a bonehead plan. Uh, it was a bonehead plan even before COVID-19 struck, and um, partly because it it really doesn't have the level of support that would be necessary for it to be implemented. And that was before COVID-19. You you talk to the city council or you go to their meetings where they talk about this and there's only sort of tepid support for it, mixed support. Uh, You go to Willamette Lane, which would also have to be a partner in making it work. And they uh, implemented a a resolution that had lots of uh, conditions in order for them to support the idea. Uh, so that was it was a faltering plan even before COVID. Now that COVID is here, I, I, I can't imagine that what's envisioned by the proponents of that track actually taking place as they have envisioned it. Now we may end up with a great track somewhere else, 
But that site in Glenwood is some of the best land that we have and should be used in a way that's pretty consistent with the Glenwood refinement plan that citizens worked on years ago. I was a part of that and that the city council adopted years ago. What, you know, I, I kind of remember that it's been a long time. Uh, what are some of the details of the refinement plan? If I remember correctly, at some point they wanted to put a conference hotel or conference center or something like that down there. Is that correct? I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering that. Well, the, the refinement plan doesn't get quite that specific. It, it okay. has a, a layout for streets and parks and public spaces. Uh, and and it, it does talk about mixed use development, which means commercial as in residential, various kinds of uses. I, I think a, a conference center hotel probably would fit within the uh, refinement plan. Uh, an indoor track would not, the, the refinement plan would have to undergo uh, great change in order to accommodate an indoor track. So then if you're elected mayor, what would be your vision then? I'm trying to, what would be your vision? What would you want to see yeah. structed? Yeah. So, well, let me make it a little bit broader than that, Mark. I talked about Springfield's great potential and its wonderful assets. Glenwood is a part of that. That river in Glenwood is just amazing. And when you think about what the potential is there, I want to see what has taken place just within the past two years on in the downtown. That kind of revitalization needs to happen in Glenwood, in Booth Kelly, in the Paramount District, in the Mohawk District, Q Street, all the way out to Thurston and north and south. It needs to encompass all of Springfield. Springfield is a, is a place that is just an incredibly wonderful place. And we need to stop thinking of ourselves as less than wonderful. We need to develop that potential and, and take full advantage of the wonderfulness of our community. Yeah, so, so does that mean, I'm just trying to get, you know, there's that place in Eugene um, behind... Being um, in Crescent Village? Crescent Village, are you, yes. are you talking about that kind of development? Does that fit within the refinement plan? Is, is this what we're talking about? The well, I, th I think a development like that might fit within the refinement plan. It's been a long time since I worked on this project. Uh, so I, I don't remember the, the, the specifics, but what is true about that is that there were plans in place when that place was developed, that someone developed a, a plan for the streets. That means a plan for where the utilities are, a plan for um, high-speed fiber, a plan for the drainage, uh, all of that stuff has to be part of the, the initial planning project, sort of the infrastructure plan that has to be there as well. Uh, whether it looks like Crescent Village, I think that that could fit within a refinement plan, but it might be different than that. Uh, obviously, we would want to put our own Springfield unique touch on anything like that mm -hmm. and, and make it uniquely Springfield, but it would be extraordinary. It would be a place where people uh, would come and enjoy the river. They would enjoy each other's company. There would be walking paths. Um, it, it would just be a wonderful place. And, and you, you've seen it happen uh, in Corvallis, Island River. You've seen it happen in Salem. Uh, we have all those assets in place here. We could, we could be one of the best smaller communities in the entire country. So then if you're elected, Mayor Mike, how would you go about creating this 
uh, traction to this area? Would you uh, seek outside developers? Would you seek outside engineering companies? Would you put on some kind of um, uh, national search? I mean, we have our own economic development committee with the chamber. We have the economic development uh, personnel within the city themselves, the employees there. How would you go about um, bringing ideas, the creativity, the personnel, the wherewithal together to pursue um, yeah. this? Well, part of the reason you do a refinement plan is so the developers can see that a city is serious about the area, that they have put in place a commitment to see it develop, that they have developed a plan to guide the developers so that they kind of know what the rules of the road are. Now, just a, a short time, maybe about uh, last summer, not, not this past, yeah, it was this past summer, uh, the city actually hired a nationally known consultant to help them to um, work with the RF, to, to develop an RFP to attract developers to Glenwood. They issued a 90 some thousand dollar contract to this consultant and they put him to work. And the idea was gonna be that they would attract developers to give us their best ideas and we would select one of those developers to implement those ideas. Shortly after they hired this person, they discontinued the whole process. Well, obviously we need to go back to that process. We need to go to a process where we are doing exactly as you suggested, where we are saying we have this wonderful asset, you are in the business of, of creating these kinds of things, private developer, what can we do together to make this the incredible place that our potential is asking for? So then if you're elected, with, with, with what you just said in mind, if you're elected mayor, what would that uh, be in your priority list? Where, where would that be in your priority list? And what would you do to make sure that these uh, processes, whether they're with personnel or resources are not circumvented again, that they are seen all the way through to the end? Well, I would make I would I would make different kinds of decisions than what's what's been done with current leadership. I'll start with that, and I, I don't want to say any more about it than that. Um, I will say that we have to prioritize, and um, but we don't have the luxury of working on these things one at a time. We have to identify some priorities and work on them all simultaneously. Obviously, we're going to have to recover from COVID, whatever stage, as you implied earlier with one of your questions, whatever stage we're at in January when I would be taking office. We have to finish that out. Um, economic vitality is a, is a broad topic. And certainly Glenwood is one of the places of great potential, but we have to get our downtown back up and running again. And then we have to look at the potential that exists in, uh, in Mohawk, um, in the Booth Kelly, all over our community. We have these little pockets of, that are gems and we need to, uh, incentivize and uh, get help developers to recognize that wonderful potential that's there and get we, we've seen that it's happened we've seen developers who are willing to put their own resources at risk mm -hmm. and be creative and visionary we've seen it happen we know it can happen mm -hmm. and it can happen much more broadly than has happened so far to date
Well, you know, there's no doubt, Mike, that there's a lot of big issues for any leader to have to take into consideration, and it's hard. It's, it's not easy. Budget, personnel, you've been in leadership positions long enough to know it can be really tough. It's a really tough process. Uh, but with that said, we're just about at an hour. I want to give you a chance to make any final comments you'd like to the voters about uh, your candidacy and how they can contact you. So it seems to me that part of the success for Springfield, Mark, is for us to develop a different mindset. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as less than. We are a wonderful community. We are not less than. We have our own unique flavor, and we need to expand on that. We need to take full advantage of it. And once we start talking to ourselves in different ways, um, I think, and once we look back at our, our previous success, and our, our recent success, I think we can put that to work and just do amazing, wonderful things. I would appreciate the voters voting for me. Ballots are coming out in just a couple of days. And uh, this year, you don't have to uh, take your ballot to a ballot box. You can actually take it right to a mailbox and drop it in because the state is paying the postage for you. I would urge you to do that early to make sure it gets there by the deadline. Very good. And if, if anyone that hears this wants to get in contact with you, how would they do that? Um, MikeEisterForMayor.com is my uh, website and I've got an email address right there. So if people have ideas or suggestions, that's the reason I put the email address there. I'd love to hear from them. Very good. So ladies and gentlemen, we've had today Mike Eister, candidate for mayor of Springfield, Oregon. Mike, we thank you for your time and sharing some of your ideas with us. And we look forward to the will of the voters on May 19th. Hey, thank you again for the great service you're providing the community, Mark. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. You have a good day. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you. Yes, sir.